Lord, we come before you. We ask you to bless this evening as we look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead and help us to see what you would have us to see from all this. Bless those who aren't here today in your son's precious name. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 8, starting at verse 1. All the commandments which I have commanded you this day shall you observe to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore unto your fathers. And you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God led you these forty years in the wilderness to humble you and to prove you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and suffered you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you knew not, neither did your fathers know, that he might make you know what man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Your raiment waxed not old upon you, neither did your foot swell these forty years. You shall also consider in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord God chastens you. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God brings you into a good land, land of brooks of water and fountains and depths and springs and valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of oil, of oil, of oil olive and honey, a land wherein you shall eat bread without scarceness, that you shall not lack anything in it, a land whose stones are iron and whose hills you may dig out brass. We're going to stop there at 9 for the moment. So this one starts with Moses telling the people, all the commandments that God has commanded you, you shall observe to do. And this is kind of an interesting thing because this observe is the same word as guard. Guard his commandments in, your, in our life. This is something we've got to remember. When we learn things, we need to guard it, keep it safe, keep it in remembrance. Because it is so easy for us to forget what God says. Especially as the world gets more and more evil, it gets to be very easy because the world is piling on all of the bad teaching that the world has for us. And it's very easy to lose the teaching of God. And I've been thinking about this as even as I was re reading this today. Sometimes I feel like I'm repeating myself when I preach and keep saying the same things, but it's because God keeps saying the same thing in the Word over and over and over again. Why does He say the same thing? Because He knows that we're forgetful hearers and that we need to be reminded and have it pounded into our heads. So He says it over and over and over again. And eventually, it starts sinking in and we start to remember it after many times of being repeated. And this is the same thing for anything that you teach when you, if you were at work and you had to learn something you, by the sheer repetition of doing something over and over again meant that you it's after a while it got stuck it just it's what you did you did it out of habit and for the person who was teaching you they said the same thing over and over and over again and when you get somebody who's pretty quick at learning they look at that teacher and say are you stupid you keep saying the same thing over and over again and it's because most people need to hear it a hundred times I think of the kids as we've given them the gospel up there over the four years that we've been here and and some from before but for four years that I know we've been here we've been giving them the gospel but every time I ask them how do you go to heaven I hear the same answer from them do more good than bad and you'll get to heaven and it kind of makes me sad, but I also realize we get them one, maybe two hours a week. And they're getting everything else piled on them the other 161 hours a week, 163 hours a week, excuse me, that they're getting piled on the wrong information. And this is why as teachers and in the word of God, he keeps, God keeps saying it over and over again because he wants us to start thinking the way he wants us to think. It says, I've given you these commandments, guard them, keep them, keep thinking about them so that you can learn to be obedient. And how do we learn to be obedient? We learn what we're supposed to be obedient to. And eventually, we might start beginning to be obedient. And as we walk long enough with God, we become more obedient because we start paying attention to what he says. And he says, by observing them, 
that we may live. This word is much more than just be alive. It is to be quickened and revived. How many times have you spent time in God's word or in a Bible story or, or in a, listening to a message and you come out feeling completely alive because God's word has gotten into your brain and God has gotten into it and it brings life. It revives you. I've, all, I've shared with you so many times when I was in the restaurants, especially, and the stress would kick in. And I would just try to run the trash out or go to the back and, and get supplies for the, for the make line. And just while I was doing either one of them, just at the very least, give a quick prayer and refocus my mind. But if I went out with the trash, just sing a quick, quick chorus. You know, something along, cheer up, ye saints of God. There's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to make you afraid, nothing to make you doubt. Remember, Jesus never fails, so why not trust him and shout? You'll be sorry you worried at all tomorrow morning. Wonderful little chorus. It's got an Irish beat to it. Uh, you know, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean out into your own understandings. You know, all these different songs and Bible verses that would come into my mind and just refocus me on God and revive my spirit. Give me that life. And this is what he's telling you. Keep his commandments and he revives us. And he says, and multiply you. This whole idea of being multiplied. This is wonderful. When you share God with people, you're going to see him be multiplied in others and they in turn will start building up and edifying. I've been thinking a lot as we've come into this 125 year celebration for the church. What is the purpose of a church? And I've been thinking a lot about that and I heard somebody today, he made a very interesting thing that I've always believed. The purpose of the church is not to come together and sing songs. You can do that at home. We can sing songs to God all day long at home, in our car, on the, at work, wherever. It is not to come together to pray together necessarily. Though God, Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of you. Because we can pray anywhere. It's not even just to be taught a lesson because we can teach ourselves by reading God's word and listen to other people. The whole purpose of the church is to edify one another, to build one another up and to hold each other accountable in the way of God. That is something we cannot do by ourselves. I can't, I, I can speak words of encouragement to myself from the Bible and I've heard people make a big deal of being able to do that. But you know, when we do it our own self, it has not, does not have the same impact as when somebody comes and says, I love the way you've been growing in God. I love the way that you've been faithful. I love the way that, that God has been using you. And those words edify and build up. And those are important words that we share with one another. We don't say them if they're not true. Uh, I shared, at uh, one time I had a pastor come up to me and he goes, I love what you've been doing in the church. And I turn around and I ask him, what am I doing in the church? Mm -hmm. Because I didn't think he was being sincere. He was just saying edifying words. He saw me around a lot and just thought that I must be doing something. And the look on his face was, uh, well, you were supposed to be edified by this. You know? and, you're, and you're challenging, you know, you're challenging it. When, some, when you speak words that are not true, it is not edification. It is a lie. And lies do not edify. Now that doesn't mean when somebody's doing really bad, you start tearing them apart and ripping them, ripping them to shred. That's not going to edify them either. But if you have a relationship with them, there is a time when you come in and say, you know, I'm really concerned about the direction your life's going. But again, I've said it over and over. If you're not praying for that person, don't even go that far. Because you're not loving them enough to get on your knees in front of God for that person. You don't love them enough to correct them. But if you're praying for them and you can go to them with that great love and that burden on your heart that says, I want to see so much better for you because God is there wanting you to do better. This is where we are with our edification. We see things and, and watch people and we see how they're responding and how they grow. The greatest thing I have seen in the last three and a half, almost four years here is the growth in, in a number of people in this church. In the word, being excited about God, just saying, I want to know him more. And I've had several people share that, you know, that they've learned so much in the last four years 
And, and Loretta's pretty famous, you know, she'll go, why did I have to be 100 before I got here? But, you know, but we get to this place where we need teaching. And it's not me, it could have been anybody that came in here and, and brought the word of God. God's been able to use me to do this, and I take great pleasure in the fact that he's using me. But it could have been anybody. It can be anybody. We at this table could be talking and ministering into people's lives by just sharing what God has shared with us and being able to let people know it's real. It's real. Uh, we, we just bought God's Not Dead 2, and I watched it the other night, and it's a fantastic movie. And it's all about... Proving that Jesus is a real historical person. And you know, there are a lot of people out there that don't believe that Jesus existed. Or if he did, he's not what everybody said he was. Okay? They either go one extreme or the other. It's probably about two-thirds of the population, probably about a third don't believe he ever existed. And a good solid third don't believe that he said anything that the Bible says and he didn't do any of that stuff. This is a very sad Thing. And this is the attack that the world gives on us. How can you quote this person who is a make-believe person you know, and, and believe all these fairy tale things about him? It's important for us to understand Jesus is who he says he was and is and did resurrect, did live that perfect life, spoke the things that it says that he spoke, did the things that said that he did, and there's a lot of proof behind it. And this is the great thing. If you meet somebody and they say that they don't believe the Bible or they don't believe in Jesus or you know, it's a book of fairy tales or it's got contradictions, challenge them. Ask them to prove it. You know, ask them to give you one and all they're going to say is, well, I know there's lots of them. No, 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 give me one. You say there's lots, give me one. Challenge them to go find it because if they actively go try to find it, they're going to get converted. It's happened over and over and over again. Lee Strobel, who's one of the great apologists in our, in our day, decided he was going to go in because his wife became a Christian, was becoming a fanatic, so he wanted to prove that she, was, she did not have anything to believe in. Ended up becoming a Christian. The more he dug into it, the more he realized it had to be true. Another, another man, he's a police officer on cold cases. He's an expert on taking testimony and trying to find the falsehoods in it. So he decided as an atheist that he was going to prove that the Gospels were full of, full of contradictions, that they couldn't be good evidence. He became a Christian because it was so perfect and it fit into, it proved to him that they were telling the truth. Josh McDowell from the generation I grew up went in, you know, got, got challenged in college. He goes, I've got to prove, disprove the Bible. He took a year off college and became a Christian as he tried to disprove the Bible. The Bible is not afraid of being examined. All right? God is not afraid of being examined. The truth always stands up. It will not be knocked down and, and, and destroyed because truth is truth. And this, we even have that adage, you know, that truth will come out. When you lie, people will tell you the truth's going to come out. And eventually, it may take Sometimes years, not usually even that long, but the truth always eventually comes out. And the person who lied is usually the one that lets it slip. Okay? They either say something in contradiction to the original lie or say something like, wow, I got away with that one. Or, but they're, the one who started telling the lie is usually the one that lets the truth come out. And it's just God's truth coming out. And here he's saying, keep my commandments that you may live and multiply and that you can go in and possess the land that he swore to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and them, <laughs> over and over again, telling them the land was going to be theirs. <clears throat> and it says, and you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God led you these 40 years in the wilderness. I love this word, remember. Recall. Recall what God has done for you in the wilderness. And we want to think about this, and I keep telling people, we want to remember what has God done for us in our lifetime. How many miracles has he put in our life that we tend to forget about? And I'm talking not just big things that he does. I'm talking about the little things. 
the times when you weren't sure how the rent was going to be paid in the house and the next thing you know, you're paying the rent. The time you don't know how the electricity is getting off and you go to a church or, or one of the uh, Christian nonprofits and they pay your, pay your bill for you. Why were they there? Because God put it in their heart to be there in the first place and if they weren't there, you wouldn't have got your bill paid and your electricity would have been shut off and it's all because of God. The times that he's protected you when you should have been dead. I talk to a lot of people when they come to become a Christian and they think back, I should have been dead so many times. <clears throat> you know, the, the, my dad had a testimony of an axe head that came flying off of a handle right straight between his eyes and at the last moment just veered off. You know, and he remembers that vividly. Different other activities where things happen that he knows he should have been dead. The accident that you got involved with that you know, destroyed your car and you look at the car and wonder how anybody lived and you, and you lived through it. The, the time that you missed an accident that you don't know about because of... Russian huh? One Russian roulette. Russian roulette, huh? Yeah, I won. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Okay. I was hoping that was a joke because it wasn't... <laughs> Nobody plays that and wins. Well... <laughs> I'll load his shotgun here in Bowman in the passenger. He loaded his shotgun, aimed it at me, and pulled the trigger. And I saw my life flash. I thought I was dead. And he said, nah, I'm just kidding. These are empty shells. But That's not something to play at, though, because yeah, if you accidentally put one in, he it's... no longer my friend. I didn't yeah. hang out with that guy again. I, I saw my life flash, but there's I am ruminating into the past again. But geez, yeah. I'll never but, forget it, believe me. But here God says, remember all the ways which the Lord has led you. The Lord leads us. And you know what? The Lord leads us even before we're saved. Sometimes we don't listen very well, and we go down the wrong paths, and we pay for it. But even then, the Lord knew we were going to go down the wrong path, and has prepared the, the next step for us. This is important. Remember what I've done for 40 years. What has God done for 40 years? He's made them victorious in battle. He's fed them daily with manna. He's given them quail to eat. He's given them water to drink. He's given them shade by the cloud at night, at, during the day to keep them cooled off. And he's given them fire by night to stay warm in the sea. He's given them water over and over again. When they, when they have rebelled, he's given them mercy. They went after idols and he sent fiery serpents in them and then put up the bronze serpent that said that all you got to do to live is look. You're not even having to repent to forgive. You just have to look. Why would that be enough? Because that look said God is strong. God is stronger than what I'm going through. And the last thing you want to do when you're in the pain of those fiery serpents was to look up at that snake on a pole which makes no sense to do. Now, all of these things that God has done and kept Think about how many times he's blessed you. I've all told you, one of my hymns that I love to sing is Count Your Blessings. You know, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. When you start counting what God has done, the little blessings here, the little blessings there, our children, how precious and sweet they are for the most part. <laughs> this, there's times when we don't want to be associated with them, but overall we look at them and say, this is my child, I'm, you know, and hopefully we're raise them in a way that we're proud of them. I've been able to say to my kids, I'm so proud of where you are with God and the things you're doing and the, and the changes you're making in your, in your life. With some of them, I haven't always been able to say that as they've wandered off into the wilderness to be, to be uh, tested by God. But we look at this. What has God done? How has he blessed us? How has he given us the job we needed at just the right time to, to pay for things? How did he provide the needs for us? You know, the, the time when I can remember when we came out of our front door and there's a bunch of Christmas presents and food sitting outside the front door because we were barely holding on with the jobs that, that we were running with four kids and had a whole bunch of gifts just sitting outside the door and that made their Christmas because we didn't have much to buy. Little things that were done, little things that were done to help out. The people that we've been able to help out over the years and just get the blessing. You realize when Jesus said it's more blessed to give than receive, it really is true. It is more fun and, and it is a great blessing to give people. And I had to learn early on that you don't steal the blessing from somebody by saying, no, I don't need it. 
know, because usually if they're willing to give you, God put it on their heart, you probably do need it. And if you don't, just take it anyway and give it away to somebody else. But we look at this and God says, I've kept you in the wilderness. Why did he keep them? He said to humble you. He wanted to show them it was not them doing it. Have you ever been in a place where God is purposely trying to humble you to show you it's not you? It's him doing everything. The children wandering in the wilderness, children of Israel wandering in the wilderness. Everything was provided by God. They went out every morning and there's manna on the ground. They picked the manna up. They, they made breakfast with manna. They made lunch with manna. And they made dinner with manna. And that's why they got tired of manna. <laughs> there can only be so many ways, no matter how good something tastes, that you can before you get tired of it. And I remember, you know, I got tired of pizza after many years of working in pizza. I also only worked for a little over a year in a steak place, and I got tired of steak, and I would have told you there would be no way I'd ever get tired of steak, but I got tired of steak after a while. No matter how much you like something, you can get tired of it if you've had it often enough. And God provided, he humbled them, and he says he proved them, he saved them. How pure was their belief? And God does that to us all the time. Do you really believe? Are you really going to stand for me? And he puts us in test to say, am I going to stand for him? Am I going to hold on to him and, and see him be victorious? Or am I going to fall flat on my face because I don't believe what he, what he told me and how he, what he taught me? And the Jews, 40 years in the wilderness, going all the way back to their parents at Mount Sinai, had this big penchant for worshiping idols. <laughs> Started with a golden idol, and then they did Baal, and then they did all these other different idols. Every time they turned around... They were rebelling against God. Then God says, I'm giving you everything. I'm providing everything for you. And they would still turn away from God. This is a pretty sad thing to think about. And, and his whole reason was that you, that you might know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. And that should sound very familiar because this is the verse that Jesus quoted when Satan asked him to turn the stones into bread. He goes, you're God, you can do anything you want. And he said, man shall not live by, does not uh, live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus quoted, in every temptation, Jesus quoted Deuteronomy back to Satan and kept qu quoting back Deuteronomy. And so here we see we are not to just think about our food and our needs. God wants to provide his spirit in us. And I can tell you, it is so wonderful when you get quickened by the spirit, you get quickened by the word. Times when I've been really tired and I just start studying, and I go, wow, this is great, and get quickened and I'm ready to go again. And this is something that we want to be looking at. What is God doing for us? How is he filling our life? When we face a temptation, what do we do? Do we go to God and start dwelling on his words? You know, Proverbs 3, 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. And in verse 6 it says, In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. When we are in a place where we don't know what to do, we need to call on God and say, God, I need direction. God, I'm struggling with this sin. Help me get victory over this. That takes us to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There hath no temptation overtaken you, but such is common to man. But God will provide a way of escape. Everything is common. Nothing is new. Nothing is unusual. God's got a way of escape. But we need to turn to him. Because if we go to our own understanding, we will fall. We will fail. The flesh will make a bad decision. And it's a guarantee. It says, Your raiment waxed not old upon you, neither did your feet swell these 40 years. And this is where a lot of pastors put the joke that women, this was a terrible verse for women, that they couldn't buy, didn't need to buy clothes for 40 years. Their clothes did not wear out. Their clothes did not grow old. And you think about that. Wearing the same thing for 40 years and not having it wear out. 
Some of us have clothes that we like. It's a favorite. It's a shirt we like to wear, or a pair of pants we like to wear, or a pair of shoes we like to wear. Within a couple years, they usually, if you wear them a lot, start to wear out. Give them a decade and they're just about gone. And then you think, if you had them for 40 years and you wore it every day, uh, you would be wearing rags. <laughs> just washing them would turn them into rags. Not even just wearing them. And he says, your clothes did not wear out. Then he goes, and your feet did not swell. Now, this is something that is quite an amazing thing in the first place. Just the idea of the feet not swelling in the desert as they're on their feet every day walking. But in Hebrew, this word for swell means so much more. They didn't blister. They didn't callous. They were in good condition. And if you think about this, if you walked every day for 40 years, or even most every day, because there's sometimes when they rested for a short period of time, how much calluses would you have, especially wearing sandals? Your feet would have been calloused and blistered. Walk around a long time, your feet will end up getting blistered, especially where the, the shoes chafe up against them. And he says, your feet did not blister. They did not get calloused. They did not swell for 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. That is a miracle. And that is a blessing that people probably weren't thinking of. And God's trying to help them here with the blessings. I gave you food. I gave you water. Your clothes didn't get old, get old and, and rotten. And by the way, your shoes didn't mess up your feet for those 40 years either. He's given them four blessings right off the bat. So that they'll, if, geez, he's starting them on their count. <laughs> he's starting them on their count. Here's, your, here's some of your blessings. Verse 5 says, you shall, not, you shall also consider in your heart, as a man chastens his son, so the Lord God chastens you. If we truly love our children, we discipline them. God says to spank them or use the rod on them, and that's hard to do in this day and age. But, you know, one of the things I found out with my kids, by the time they were six, seven, eight years old, I didn't have to spank them very often because they had been disciplined when they were younger. When they got a little older, there were other disciplines that were much better than trying to spank them. Take, take away the use of the car, take away, take away the, the TV privileges, make them stay out of their bedrooms except for going to bed. <laughs> you know, sending a kid to their bedroom is not a punishment for most kids. Because you know, they got their games and their TV and their stereos and their radios. You know, for most kids, making them sit downstairs in the living room with their parents, watching whatever the parents are watching and <laughs> playing whatever the parents are playing is a bigger punishment than letting them go to their room. Yeah. Uh, and we use that every once in a while. No, you get to stay in the living room with us tonight. And with certain ones of the kids, it was more of a punishment than others. <laughs> but we look at this and says, we as humans will punish our kids because we love them. God will punish us when we disobey because he loves us. And his punishments will be the right punishment to make us know that we're being punished. And it's amazing sometimes when you go to do a sin and you go, and especially when you choose to make, commit that sin, you're going, I'm just going to do it. I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. And God says, fine, there's no pleasure in it. And sin has a momentary pleasure always. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. We get some pleasure out of the sin, at least for a t short time. Whether it's alcohol and drugs where you just forget for a while uh, until you get done and realize that you wasted all your money and, and you've got the hangover and, the, and possibly other benefit, you know, things that went wrong because of it. Or the sexual uh, uh, affairs that you get into, which seem to be fun at the moment you do them and then later on, you realize that you have done things that God want, doesn't want and, it, and you realize that how bad it was. The times when we lie, because at the moment that we lie, it sounds like the easiest and best way out of the, out of the problem and then we just compound our problems as we go further down the road. Sin has that momentary satisfaction, but it does not last. And God sometimes will even make sure that that momentary time does not happen when we know it's supposed to be wrong but God chastens us and then Moses says therefore 
You shall keep my commandments, says the Lord, and walk in his ways and fear him. Keep God's commandments. We get to know what they are. The more we study his word, the more we know what he wants us to do. And as I've said before, how do we change in our life? God comes in, he fills us up. He lives in us. He slowly starts changing us from the inside out. He makes us more godlike on the inside, more like him on the inside. And eventually, what we do and what we say becomes what he is in various areas. And, we, and we've used this example like the pickle. You put the vegetable in the vinegar, you put it away in the shelf, and that vegetable does absolutely nothing to become a, vin to become a pickle. It stays in the vinegar and it becomes a pickle. Okay, it has no choice to, be, to do anything but become a pickle because it's in the vinegar. When God is dwelling inside us, we have no choice but to become like him because he changes us just as the vinegar does to the vegetable to make it a pickle. Now it's slow. We have this habit of trying to jump out of the vinegar <laughs> But God says, no, come on back here. You're not going anywhere. You're going to stay here, and I'm going to change you because you invited me in. Now, does he do this with everybody? No, because he doesn't live in everybody. He only lives in those who have asked him to come in and live inside them. But once he does, he lives in, and he changes us. And this is why when you're following him and being changed, you look back over your life a year later and go, wow, things have changed. You look back over 10 years and it's like, wow, I've really changed in 10 years. I used to really love doing such and such and I don't do it anymore. And you know what? I haven't wanted to do it. Why? Because God has made the change. And he's going to do this chastening. He's going to keep. He's going to help us to walk in his ways. Verse 7, for the Lord your God brings you into a good land, a land with brooks of water, fountains, depths of springs, and valleys and hills. God brought the children of Israel into the promised land. We as Christians get brought into the promised land, and the promised land is not heaven. The promised land is where we have the blessings of God because he's living in us, and we're walking in his ways, and he gives us the rewards of the promised land. Look what he gives them. He gives them water. Water is the word, the Holy Spirit in us. He gives them depths of water. What did Jesus say? I am the living water. He who drinks from me shall never thirst again. Then he gives them valleys and hills, gentle grasses, places to rest. We go back into Psalm 23, and David says it the same way. You feed me in the presence of my enemies. You make me lay down in, in, in green pastures. You, you still my soul. You give me water from the still waters. God's repeating that here with Dan, with the uh, with Moses giving them. He gives us water. He gives us food. Because he's taking you into a land of wheat and barley, vines, pomegranate, fig trees, a land of olive oil and honey. All the blessings and the fruit that he gives us. Oil, the Holy Spirit that comes upon us and anoints us and fills us. The honey. God uses his word and calls it sweet as honey. We sing the song from Psalm 19, sweeter also than honey, and the honeycomb is his word. Why do they do that? Because sugar, the sweetener they used back in that day was honey. Honey was precious in the, in the biblical days. It was how they sweetened everything, and it was put onto everything. Matter of fact, for the Hebrews, it's how they rewarded the children when they learned their Bible verses. They would give them a drop of honey as a reward for having memorized it. We would, we would use candy in our day, but it was, here's your, here's your reward, a, a drop of honey or a, or a little spoon of honey. And that was their reward. What did it do? It taught them to, to think of God's word as sweet and, and, and quickening and enlightening and a reward. I got God's word and look at the reward I got. And this is what he's saying. I'm going to give you all of this stuff. In verse 9, he says, And a land wherein you shall eat bread without scarceness. He said, When you're in the promised land, you will not go hungry. You will be able to eat as much as you want, and you shall lack nothing. 
when we are walking with God and he's brought us into that promised land spiritually, I have said very clearly ago, one of the, one of the things that uh, is taught in uh, the winning uh, evangelism by uh, Ray Crawford and, and, and Cameron is there's a question of when you talk to somebody and they're absolutely sure that their way's right. They ask you to, they teach you to ask a question, what if you're wrong? What if you're wrong and there's no reincarnation? What if you're wrong and the, when you die, it's not the end of all things? What if you're wrong? Now, when you use that term, question, you need to expect them to ask you the same question. Well, what if Christianity is wrong? And you know what? I can answer that with no problem. I have lost nothing. If there is no heaven, and I know there's a heaven because God's been true and everything else, but if for some bizarre reason I die and there's no heaven, I have had a very good life following God. I have, been, I have had great joy. I have had great peace. I have had great blessings. And if for some reason God told me the truth on this earth and lied to me about eternity... And notice how I say that, because if he's going to be true in, on this earth, he's not going to lie about eternity. But if somehow he told us the truth about here and lied about eternity, I have not lost anything. Nothing at all. I have never felt deprived because I haven't gone living a life of sin. Never felt deprived because of the blessing God has given me. So even if for somehow I'm wrong, I have lost nothing. But if you're counting everything on your idea of getting to try it 800 times before you get it right, or that it just ends and there's nothing following and you're wrong, you've got a serious consideration to have to face. Basically, hell. And this is very important. God has given us all these blessings. He has given us great peace, great joy, and supplied all our needs. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. He supplies all our needs. Now, sometimes for us Americans, we, we kind of mix up needs and wants. But, but, you know, even with that, God oftentimes supplies a lot of our wants because he's a good father who wants to bless us and give us things. Will he give us everything we want? Absolutely not. He's not going to spoil us. Somebody who gets everything they want is a spoiled, rotten brat. Huh? Well, I don't know about you, but I've seen many. I've seen many spoiled brats that you know they got everything. You know, usually they have wealthy parents, or they have parents who are willing to go into debt to give them whatever they want. And they usually whine and cry. And they whine and cry for everything they want. You were talking about uh, all sin has consequences. But look at me. I've been fifteen years now doing drugs. You know, bad things. There's consequences for everything. Some are very short term, some are long term. And I've seen a lot of people. Yep, yeah, I've watched a lot of people who have lived after the devil's way of living for so many years, and then they get to old life and they're paying for it. If they get if they get there, then they pay for it. Their body has been so abused that they're in pain for their later years instead of having you know, at being without that pain. Now, can God take that away? Yes, but you know, unfortunately, God usually does not take the consequences away for sin. He lets you face them and say as a reminder so that the next time you want to do something, he goes, uh, kind of remember what, you know, you had this as your reward. It's coming. There's going to be another one. Yep. Verse 10. And we're going to read a couple of verses here. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you forget not the Lord your God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command you this day. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and dwell therein, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God which brought you forth from the land of Egypt from the house of bondage who led you there through the great and terrible wilderness wherein fiery serpents and scorpions and drought where there was no water who brought you forth water from out of the rock of flint 
who fed you in the wilderness with manna, with your fa which your fathers knew not, that he might humble you, that he might prove you, and to do good to your latter end. And you say in your heart, my power and my might and my hand have gotten me this wealth. This is something that I have seen many times in many people's lives. They follow God. They get blessed. They have plenty of food. They have money in the bank. They buy their little toys. They buy the big house. They buy the, the three cars in the, in the garage. And they buy the quads. And they buy the boats and the RVs and the swimming pool and the tennis courts and whatever else you know turns their turns their heart on you know it could be something they buy the scuba gear to go scuba scuba you know scubaing all over the world they, you know they buy the hiking hiking things and they forget god when they get there just as god says beware lest you forget and i love this word in hebrew lest you cease to care about God. God has blessings and so often I have watched people and even done it myself in various places and just kind of forget God because there's the blessings there. And God starts out with just a little touch, you know, making just something happen, it's usually something small and saying, are you going to remember who gave you all this stuff? He might take away some of the toys for a moment, you know, break them down or whatever. Are you sure you remember? Don't you remember who gave you this stuff? And the problem is, is you know, and it usually starts innocently enough, just as it says here, you, you've eaten your full, you're, you're full, you're not, you're, your gardens or your, your fields and gardens are giving you plenty of food, your trees are giving you plenty of food, you're getting lots of silver and gold, your flocks, you've got more flocks than you know what to do with, and you can go eat the bull every night and waste the rest of it if you want. He you know, goes, you've got so much. And God's saying then your heart will be lifted up and you'll forget God. You'll cease to care about God who brought you out and as he said, brought you out of Egypt. All the miraculous things. And when I read, when I read the story of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, Deuteronomy, I, I can't help but think, how could they forget these things? The miraculous way God took them out of Egypt and they're not even out of Egypt for about two or three months, and they're already asking Aaron to make an idol for them. And God has caused darkness. He turned the river into blood. He sent flies and locusts and, and frogs and darkness and, and hail and diseases on the cattle. And he kept, the, kept many of them separate from their own people while Israel suffered. They didn't suffer through many of these things. And God... God took them out and immediately they started griping against God saying, God, you know, you're just so weak. You couldn't, you can't keep us out here in the wilderness. Just delivered them from the number one nation in the world, empire in the world, took them out of them. And they're griping against God because they get a little hungry on the, on the second day out and a little thirsty. Okay. They haven't even eaten all the food that they brought out of Egypt yet. And they're griping and complaining. And they do this for 40 years and God's saying, remember my power. If nothing else, remember that I've given you food every day. Every day there's food laying outside your tent. You don't even have to go very far. Just crawl out, of your, crawl out on your belly if you want and pick it up. <laughs> you don't even have to get up and walk around. It's right outside your door. And they're griping to God that he doesn't give them anything. How many times do we do this when God has blessed us and blessed us and blessed us and we go, God, you didn't give me the filet mignon that I wanted last night. You only, you only gave me porterhouse steak. <laughs> you know. uh, God, you, you, didn't give me, you didn't give me my steak and lobster dinner. All you did was give me a hamburger. And God's saying, you had food. What are you complaining about? And this is what they were doing. God, you didn't give me what I wanted, so I'm going to go and complain and gripe. We need to be careful because we can do that so easy. And he punished them over and over again. I've even said, how many times do we get so used to the blessings of God that we start thinking about them as the normal way of life and quit thanking him for the small blessings? And if we can't be thankful in the little things, he's not going to give us the bigger things, and he's probably going to take away the blessings that we have already so he can show us saying, you, you thought you were not being blessed. Let me show you not being blessed. 
and he lets us suffer for a little while until we repent and say, okay, God, I'm, I'm really happy. Give me back the manna. Give me back the manna and the water, God. I'll be happy. God's wanting to give us better things, but if, he, if we're not going to be content, he's not going to do it. There are many Christians who have become millionaires. Why? Because they wanted to honor God with the money. Sears and Roebuck, J.C. Penney, the, the owner, the founder of Caterpillar, all honored God. And all three of those major people gave 90% of their money to God and kept only 10%, and they were millionaires in their own right. So you think about how much they gave to God. Now, is God going to do that for everybody? I think if everybody really had a heart to do that, he probably would. But most people, when they start getting a little bit, say, okay, I can move out of my one-bedroom house into the five-bedroom house. Okay, I got enough to get out of the five-bedroom house. I can buy the mansion on the hilltop. Okay, I got enough to sell this mansion on the hilltop, and I can go get the really big celebrity house that costs $20 million up over there. You know, That is our penchant to do. God, you're blessing me. I'm going to spend it on myself. And God's saying, what about me? I'm giving you blessings. The sad thing is the statistics show that the poorer somebody is, the more likely they are to give a tithe of their money. Why? Well, because if you're only making $1,000 a month, which in our country is barely livable wage, you're only giving away $100, and that doesn't buy very much. You know, it doesn't buy much. But when you're making $240,000 a year, and, you're, and your income is $20,000 a month, and your tithe is $2,000 a month, you start looking at that 2000 and say, well, here's three car payments, or the payment for the house, or, you know, and you start looking at it and say, this is a lot of money. It's no more money than the person who ties on, on the $1,000 and gives 100 in, in reality, you still have, and you have a lot more of the, of, you know, because you still have $18,000 to spend. But Jesus, when he looked at the tithes and offerings, remember when the widow woman gave and gave her two mites. Some people look at that and say, well, see, God, God blessed her and said she, that she was blessed above all. Why was she blessed above all? Not just because it was two pennies. She gave all that she had. She gave 100% of the money she had. She gave it for the right reasons. She gave it from her heart. She gave it for all the reasons of honoring God with that money. And God says she gave with the right heart. All those other guys, they gave lots of money, but they really, they didn't tithe. They didn't even give it with the right attitude. Even if they did tithe, most of them were just tithing because God said to, and there was no heart attitude behind it. Now, God blesses the tithe. I don't care what your attitude is for the tithe. He'll bless the tithe. But if you can be a hilarious giver, as Paul says, be a joyful giver, hilarious giver, God loves that. When you're giving out of your fullness of your heart and saying, God, I just want to bless, bless you. I'm not even giving so that you'll give back to me, God. I'm just giving because I want to bless you. But it says, lest your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, the house of bondage, brought you through the great desert, carried you through the fiery serpents and the scorpions and the droughts, the no water. I mean, he's, again, he's given them the reasons to count their blessings. I took you, and this time he's going all the way back to Egypt. I took you out of Egypt. I gave you water. I gave you... I gave you the food. I protected you against the, the snakes and the scorpions and all this stuff. Have you ever wondered sometimes when you're out in the wilderness, you know, especially if you're out in really dense wilderness, you know, the snakes and everything that are out there. I always wonder sometimes about them. I'm not a big fan of going out hiking in some of these places around here. Or going, I wouldn't want to climb up and down these rocks because you get your hand hold in a rock and you're probably going to get a bit. Uh, I don't trust them. And I know that's not what you're supposed to be worried about when you do that, but it's something I worry about. So I don't go out doing a lot of this stuff uh, and, you know, in, in the wild, wild areas. I have no camp problem going camping on the campgrounds and those things, but I sometimes worry about the other places where these pits are. I shouldn't because God's covered it. And verse 16 says, Who led you through the wilderness with manna that your fathers knew, that he might humble you, that he might prove you and do good and do you good at a latter end. Why does God put us through the trials? Again, he repeats this the second time in this chapter. First, to humble us, to make sure we realize it's not us. It is not me that does anything good. Remember the rich young ruler who went to Jesus and said, Good master, what must I do to be saved? Jesus' first question is, 
Why do you call me good? There's only one good. He wanted to, number one, to admit that he was God. Then what did he tell him to do? He told him to keep the Ten Commandments. And he said, I've done all these things since I was a youth. And he said, one thing you lack, go and sell all you have and give to the poor. Why? Because his wealth was his God. He had his hope, his faith, and his trust in his wealth. And God said, and Jesus said, go get rid of it. Go get rid of your, your idol and, and depend on God. And he went away sad. Oftentimes, God proves us. How does he prove us? Make us understand it's not us, that he's going to test us. He says, and he gives, humble you, and to prove you, to assay you, to put you through the test. When you came in, in the days of mining, and you came in with what you thought was silver and gold, the first thing you had to do with it, you went to the assay office, and they would put the chemicals on it and make sure, was this gold, was it, was it silver? They would knock off the excess rock and weigh how much silver and gold you had, but they ran it through the test. They proved, was it real? Was it real? God is going to prove us. Are we real with him? And sometimes it hurts. When he pours the acid on to burn away all the impurities to say, is this real silver? Is this real gold? He takes the gold and the silver and throws it into the refiner's pot and puts a little bit of heat under it so that it melts and says, are we going to have real gold and silver here that's pure and without impurities? And he keeps putting the heat on and shit, pulling off the, 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 the dross. And he says, this is the purpose of your tests. We're looking at him and saying, God, stop it. This hurts. God, you don't love me. You're putting me through all these tests. And he's saying, no, I love you so much. I want to make sure it's real and pure. And we're going, God, it's not, you're, not do, you're not being very nice to me, God. This hurts. And then what is the reason at the very end of this verse? To do good for you in the latter end. He proves us so that we can be rewarded. He proves us so that we can be a reflection of him. And in the New Testament, Paul tells us that he puts us in the refiner's fire and he pulls out the dross until he could see his face in the, in, the, in, the, in the gold, which meant that it was totally pure. Why does he do that to us? So that he is the one that's reflected in our life. So that when people look at us, they see God. And this is the greatest thing. When people look at you and their testimony is, there's something different about you. You just seem to have joy. You seem to have peace. When things go bad, you seem to have things together. Why? They're not saying that we're perfect because they know we aren't going to be perfect and we know we're not going to be perfect. But when we stand up against the temptations, when we reflect God, people look at us and we can say, it's God. It's God coming out. We can't, we can't do anything good unless it's God coming out of us. And in verse 17, and you say in your heart, my power and my might and my hand have gotten me this wealth, but you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he that gives you the power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto your fathers as in this day. We cannot do anything of ourselves. And God is saying, when you're tempted to say, it's me, look at me, look what I've done. God says, remember that it's me. When I get a victory in my life over sin, it's God that gives me victory if it's true victory. If I've disciplined my flesh with a whip and a chair and I've got that lion in the corner and, and I think I've gotten victory over it and I dare to turn my back on that lion, the lion will strike in a moment. And this is something that even animal tamers will tell you, especially wild animal tamers. You don't turn your back on these animals that are, even though they're partially trained, they're still wild and they given an opportunity, they will strike. We try so hard to discipline our flesh and put it in, you know, beat it into a corner with a whip and a chair. It's a wild fire, a wild animal and given just half an opportunity, it will strike. This is why God says, I'm going to crucify it. I'm gonna kill it. You won't have to worry about it because it's dead. You can turn your back on a dead animal all you want, and it's not going to attack you. 
You can turn your back on a dead sin and it won't attack because it is crucified and it is dead. That's when you can say, God's given me victory. I don't have to worry about this anymore. And verse 19 says, And it shall be, if you do at all forget the Lord your God, and walk after other gods, and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. If we choose to turn our back on God and choose to follow after sin, we will pay. We will pay and eventually pay with our life and possibly for eternity. If we don't know him, we'll pay for eternity. And this is where we're told in the scriptures. If you can sin constantly and you're not convicted of the sin, you need to look at your life and say, do I know God? Is he part living in me? If you sin and you are convicted, then you are his child and he's convicting you. But if you can sin and you can sin and you can sin and you don't even have any conviction that there's anything wrong with it, you're not one of his children. And you need to look back and say, God, I need you in my life. I need you to come into my heart and convict me. I cannot go out and do a sin. It just doesn't work. I mean, yes, I do sin. Don't get me wrong. But when I go out and sin, it's like I feel miserable. Dirty, Dirty miserable. I've... I've not done what I'm supposed to. I've, I've, made, I've made something wrong. I've, I've taken God's name and drug it through the mud and I just feel bad and I've got to come back and repent and turn back to him. And this is his children. Now sometimes it takes us longer than others to actually repent. But he knows that we will and if we don't, we, we're not one of his children. And the last verse is verse 20. And as the nations which the Lord destroyed before you, so shall you perish because you would not be obedient unto the voice of the Lord your God. God says he does punish. And if you're around long enough, you're watching what God does, you see it over and over and over again. In the Psalms, especially in the first, first uh, third of them, the psalmists are almost always complaining, God, why, why do the bad people keep getting away with everything? And at the end, it's God saying, just wait. <laughs> they won't get away with it. They will pay for it eventually. And sometimes we look at it and say, God, it's been 30 years. God, it's been 40 years. And we're ready for them to be judged. And they get saved. And they've become one of God's children after a long period of being misbehaving. And God lets you know, that's why I, was, that's why I didn't crush them. That's why I didn't kill them. That's why I didn't destroy them. I wanted to give them every opportunity to come to me. Ultimately, if they, don't, if they keep choosing the wrong, the wrong choices, when they stand at the white throne judgment, they will be sent to hell. They will get their punishment at some point. Somewhere, some point, they will receive the punishment for their actions. And all we've got to do is let God be God. And when we misbehave, we will be punished. When we are obedient, he, we will be rewarded. Does that mean we always will be rewarded or always punished? No, Job's the perfect case in that. He's, he was a man that hated sin. I love it in King James, eschewed sin, which means a vehement hatred for sin. And God still let him go through a lot of hard times to prove that he was faithful because Job stayed faithful to God. Even though he had some hard times, he stayed faithful and God rewarded him at the end. God is going to reward faithfulness. He will punish evil. And a lot of times, and we've said this before, when it looks like evil people are winning, if you really got to know them, they are pretty depressed and angry and bitter. Sometimes they have the huge mansion and there's no furniture in it because they can't afford the furniture to put in the mansion. Or if they have furniture, they can't afford the food to put on the table. And even if they have that, there's other things that they want because they're never completely happy without God. And we see this over and over. Why do people start taking more and more drugs, more and more alcohol? Because it does not fill the emptiness that God is saying, I want to fill. Because only God can fill a God-shaped hole in our life. And a God-shaped hole is an infinite hole. <laughs> and no matter what, how much stuff you put in that infinite hole, you're not going to fill it. It takes an infinite God to fill the infinite hole. And he comes in and he fills that hole and that desire and says, isn't this what you really wanted? 
And he knows that that's what we wanted because that's how he created us. Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the night. And death came when they were, were separated from him. They lost that spiritual life. They lost that spiritual fulfillment and was cast out of the Garden of Eden and had all the curses that came along with it. And God is promising the children of Israel, if you forget me, you will be destroyed. And you see it many, many times in the book of Judges. They forget God, go after idols, get judged, repent, come back to God. Then they stop and forget God again, get judged, get, get, get delivered. We see it from, from Israel when they go after gods and they always were following after idols because their very first king didn't want people to go to Jerusalem and worship God in case the two kingdoms went back together. So he introduced golden calf worship in Dan and in Beersheba, uh, Bethel rather. So he had the two golden calves. Why? Because he didn't want people to go to Jerusalem to worship the God of the universe. And they went evil all the way through the time of Israel until they were taken into captivity. Judah went back and forth. They had good kings and bad kings until the end. And God is saying, I know the heart of man. I know he knows the heart of man. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? God's the only one that really knows that our heart is wicked. Without Christ, we will do the wrong things. It is a guarantee. Even when we do, even when we do the right things, our motive behind it is not correct in most cases. And, God, and we're doing it to be seen or, the, or to, to get blessed or to have somebody you know, praise us because of the good things we're doing. And God says, no, just be godly. Just be righteous. And we're going to close. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we had to look at your word. We ask that you go with us. Help us learn to serve you and be righteous and to follow you and not to let our hearts wander far from you. In your son's precious name, amen.